This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with John Paul Lederach. He is professor of international peacebuilding at the Joan B. Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I spoke with him on June 22, 2010, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of public radio station KGNU in Boulder, Colorado. This interview is included in our show, The Art of Peace. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Hi, Krista. How are you? I'm so glad to have you at the other end of the microphone, finally. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> are you home? Are you where uh, you live? I'm home, yeah. I'm where <coughs> okay. I live. Okay. Yeah, so we're, the, we're about 30 miles from here, 20 mm-hmm. miles. Okay. Um. So, Evan, if you're listening, uh, I don't know if he's on mic yet. I, I'm here. Um, we could use uh, quite a bit more down the line. Okay. All right, how's that? So, yeah, right. I'm doing it. Yeah. Mr. Ledek, maybe you could tell me how your drive to the studio was today. It was kind of wild because I was uh, trying to drop off some stuff that nobody wanted to recycle. So I ran all over town. <laughs> and they're doing a lot of construction, much more than I thought down here. So it was a little slow. That's a very virtuous, sad story. Yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. So how are you, Krista? Uh, oh, I'm pretty good, you know. Life is life. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful summer in Minnesota. Yeah, you you know, you, I was hoping you'd have me up in Minnesota because I wanted to go walleye fishing. Oh, did you? Well, we don't have a budget for flying people here, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> we anyway, would have driven I think you, and headed spend, further north. Don't you spend enough <laughs> of your time on airplanes? And Yes, we would have probably driven it and then headed further north to Lake of the Woods. Oh, really? Do you spend time up there? Uh, we, we haven't, yeah, but every other summer oh, for yeah. a week or so. Uh-huh. My wife's family does that. Really? For Are they from years, this part of the country? Girl. No, her dad just always liked fishing up there, so they, uh-huh. ever since she was little. I've never been up there. Just yeah. heard stories about it. Um, well, that's nice. Yeah. I, um, do you have any questions of me before we start? Uh, not other than what questions are you going to ask me? Well, you're just going to have to find out. <laughs> I guess too. <laughs> I'm gonna step out. I'll be listening from the other room. Okay, Evan is stepping out. Okay. As we speak. All right. I just I don't want us to I want us to make small talk for a few more minutes until the that's quite tape all right, is yeah. rolling. I, we we would we would risk saying you would risk saying something profound if we started. I'm okay. sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I uh, I just recently met Scott Appleby. Oh, did you? Actually, yeah, very good. I, he's one of those people who I knew I would cross paths with someday, and then we. Yeah. We happened to be together a couple of times and we, we talked about you. Yeah. All nice. Very good. Yeah. So Chris, how are we doing? Um I can't see you. You want me to keep talking? Um just if you could just say a couple more things, I'm just making sure you're not in this phone's too loud. Okay, you want to know what I have You to you want me to keep talking? No, I think he wants Actually I want to have Krista talk to you. Okay. Okay, I'll tell you what I had for breakfast. It's virtuous too. <laughs> I had quinoa. <laughs> Uh-huh. Almond butter, blueberries, and cinnamon. This is the yeah. breakfast of the gods that I have discovered this year, and I'm sure it's making me a better person in every way. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Does that do it for you, Chris? It does. Thank you. Okay. We're rolling. All right. We're rolling. Um, so, you know, I want to start um, 
where, where I start with everyone, and, and I'm, but I'm especially excited to hear your answer to this because I know it's going to be rich. Um, I, w- I want to hear a little bit about the spiritual background of your childhood. Of my childhood? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I grew up uh, what we have always called a PK, a preacher's kid. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in an idyllic situation in many ways because we lived in just south of Portland, Oregon, which I consider my home grounds when I'm uh, thinking about childhood and my roots. Mm-hmm. We were in a rural area, so the parsonage was a house on a farm. And so um, the spiritual roots were, back in those days, Sunday morning church, Sunday evening church, Wednesday evening, and summer Bible school. Uh, Sunday evening was particularly difficult given the advent of the black and white television that came when I was in about third grade. (laughs) And that meant uh, we had to miss Disney World and Bonanza. Right. which were big uh, trials on the uh, side of the faith expressions of our family <laughs> at that time. But no, I had a, I had a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful upbringing uh, in that uh, small rural church community. And it was a Mennonite church, right? Your it was a Mennonite, a Mennonite church, pastor? absolutely. Yeah. Um, my parents, uh, my father was from Pennsylvania, my mother from Indiana, although she grew up on the... the, the um, Mexican-Texas border in Brownsville, Texas. Uh, so for all of the entire family, when we moved there, I was, my brother was just a month or two old, and I was about a year and a half old. And it's the only memory I have, being close to a small rural Mennonite church community in the far west. Hmm. It was great. So um, there, there is this emphasis on, on peacemaking that is that is at the core of, of Mennonite tradition that I think has been especially preserved and cultivated in Mennonite mm. tradition. And I, I just wonder how, how was that conveyed and communicated and passed on to you, um, even in those early years, or was it? No, it certainly was. Um, the, the, the primary mechanisms by which that happened would have been uh, the emphasis on service that we had through uh, the, the variety of service and mission agencies, but one in particular was Mennonite Central Committee that is the one um, arm of the Mennonite churches that brings the most variety of our species together, I guess you could call. <laughs> uh, it run, runs all the way from some um, components of the Amish across to the more liberal Mennonites that are here in North America. Mm -hmm. And they have always had, um, from way back, service and volunteer opportunities for people. And those would have been particularly important during periods uh, of the national draft because the um, um, position of being conscientious objectors uh, to armed military service meant that a lot of the young Mennonite men in particular were doing um, an alternative service, and that was often done through a variety of church agencies, both in North America and throughout the world. So I remember um, quite uh, vividly, actually, hearing many, many stories in our congregational life of, of people who would have been, um, you know, I imagine a decade or two older than me, returning from uh, various parts of the world where they had 
done some kind of a service uh, work primarily. A number of them, I remember quite clearly, for example, a returning set of a young men who had been placed in what is now the Congo. It was at the time the Congo, about to become Zaire for many years. Huh. Um, and they had actually narrowly escaped uh, what was at, the, at that time uh, um, one of the periods of um, the Congo declaring itself independent of the Belgium colony that it was uh, at the time. There was a lot of upheaval and a lot of violence, and uh, they had um, you know, a lot of stories to tell about that. So that, that along with um, my, my own family tradition, meaning back through my grandparents for, and great-grandparents of people who were uh, conscience objectors during World War I and World War II, yeah. all would have been um, stories that we had uh, heard and sort of, I, I imagine we took it in in those early years as much by osmosis as anything else. Yeah. I don't know that I could have articulated it as a young child uh, in quite as concrete terms as I certainly would now. That was a part of our life, certainly. You know, what What always intrigued me uh, about the Mennonite approach to this and also seems to have great integrity is that, y- you're right, it, there's conscientious objection to <clears throat> fighting in a war, but, but Mennonites don't stay away from war zones, right? They actually commit to be present, but in a nonviolent capacity. Is that right? As medics yeah, no, or whatever there is to be doing. That. That's certainly true. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the formal al- alternative service positions ended up being in a variety of things um, that could run all the way from um, forest firefighting to uh, mental health hospitals. Um, but a lot of times people were, certainly during, for example, during the Vietnam War period, there would have been quite a number of, of placements that would have been there doing a, a variety of service-related things, but not um, a military service mm-hmm. in reference to the needs of what was happening at that time. So, yeah, there have been quite a few. Some, some of those have translated into very significant components of uh, reasons why Mennonites got involved in a variety of, uh, of um, things that you wouldn't maybe not have expected. For example, the, the placements to be working with um, mental health, uh, and especially state-run um, and some private-run mental health outfits as conscience objectors, uh, raised a real level of sensitivity to those issues for Mennonites, and you find an offspring of that being quite a number of people going into the mental health field and trying to uh, reform and bring um, a, a, a more healthy, uh, supportive environment to people who suffered in a variety of ways um, of being placed in those institutions that were, you know, during the periods of the 50s and early 60s were actually quite dire situations in many ways. So working on mental health issues in war zones or, or more in terms of um, when the, people the, came I, back? I was, yeah, I was actually mm-hmm. referring to it in, in reference to the United States because not everybody was, was sent to an overseas assignment. Okay. In I fact, see. when I came through in my, I was at the very end of the service opportunities available that were coming out of the Vietnam War period. Mm-hmm. I was uh, in that late Vietnam War period where as a 17 and 18 year old your uh, birth dates were placed in a lottery and plucked and if you got a, if you happen to be pulled early you might be drafted they were sort of at the very end of it but the service opportunities were such at that point that if you volunteer to do a, 
a three-year assignment as opposed to a one or one and a half year, you could choose to go uh, internationally. But if you waited to see what the outcome was of the of the particular um, number that you got in the in the annual draw, and mm-hmm. uh, you would be placed domestically in a hospital, a mental health institution, or in some other form of uh, service. And did did you? Ha- um Sorry, Chris. I'm going to pause you for one second. Go ahead, Evan. There's a computer on in that room. And I'm going to have them turn off. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, did you hear that? It's too noisy. I hear it. Yeah. You guys have good ears. Yeah. Chris has good ears. Yeah. That's, that's what we why pay we him for. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Special ears. <laughs> We just recently had, um, we sent some, we had Wendell Berry read some of his poetry on okay. the show. there you go. Thanks. Oh, wow, that'd be fabulous. Yeah, He's one of my favorite all-time poets. So we sent, so we sent uh, somebody to his home in Kentucky, and yeah. he wanted to sit in the kitchen, and we had to, but the refrigerator was too loud. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, too. He probably, he probably has one and from so, the 1950s. So we made him, yeah, and we made him, so then he was in the living room, and they had to close the window, which was a major decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't make them suffer much too long with yeah. the window closed. So, Chris, are you okay now? I can't. Let me just wait for this. Yeah. It does sound a lot quieter in yeah, here. I didn't realize that's what was Well, making. I know. You don't. I know. We're not trained. So, yeah, I think we're good. Um, John, I'll just let you know that you are sitting in what appears to be a squeaky-ish chair. If you just are conscious of that, we'll be fine. These roller uh, back and forth kind, so it's. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'll try to sit still. Okay. <laughs> well, do what you need to do to be natural. But. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt. Okay. So, um, when did you? So, did you serve uh, an alternative service at the end of the Vietnam period? Or? I I did, although it wasn't it wasn't a required one. I I uh, left after my sophomore year of college. And uh, did a um, an assignment uh, in Europe. Actually, I, I had wanted to go to um, a placement in the Middle East, but um, it didn't work out. So I ended up in a for just short of three years in a large student housing project in Brussels, Belgium, that mostly housed students from uh, then Zaire, Rwanda, Burundi. Uh, other parts of French-speaking Africa, Latin America, and Northern Africa. Hmm. So um, it, it it was for me um, probably my real introduction to uh, world politics in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. <laughs> Lived. <laughs> yeah, it was. We had uh, sometimes we had between thirty and forty uh, university level students, t- ages twenty-five to thirty-five, from twenty countries. And uh, it was very. It was a very interesting introduction to the world and to cross-cultural issues, and uh, certainly an education uh, around issues that I felt passionately about, that they felt equally passionately about, which mm-hmm. was particularly how do you create change. And most of them were very much in favor of violent revolution coming out of the countries that they were in. Right. And uh, I was always advocating some form of nonviolent change. So it was a great uh, opportunity to test the ideas at an early age. Well, so I wanted to ask how you, 
how and when you came to imagine peace and conflict resolution and mediation as your voc- vocation, and maybe maybe that was were the seeds of it planted there. Well, the seeds were certainly planted there. I think it probably started earlier in my in my high school days, uh, simply because we we were at the at the back end of the Vietnam War, and there were a lot of issues, you know, uh, circulating not only in our church circles, but well beyond that in terms of what was happening here in the United States. And those issues were being hotly debated. Uh, I, I took, when I first went um, to college, I went to a small Mennonite junior college, we called it as a kind of a community college, and had my first uh, formal courses on th- these sorts of issues, the um, nonviolence and ethics of peace and uh, of social justice, a variety of those things. And, I, I, and that partly was what I got very convicted about. Um, it seemed to me that m- much was being thought about and discussed and theor- you know, theoretically put forward, but it required some life choices. And so I wasn't sure what I wanted to major in and, and uh, ended up doing a, a hiatus of about four years before I went back to, to college again. And when I did eventually, your vocational question comes to to the fore. I... I actively sought out um, a program that had a peace studies major. And so my undergraduate degree was in peace studies and history. Uh, And I have literally from that point forward, uh, um, it's the only thing that I've really pursued uh, professionally Mm -hmm. um, from those days. So, you know, in the work I do, I think a lot about how um, words even and sometimes especially words that connote um, the most valuable things we do kind of lose their meaning and mm-hmm. don't carry all the meaning they have in real life. And I, I, I think peace is one of those. Um, mm-hmm. And I, um, I mean, I want to draw you out on that. But I was, I was intrigued when I was getting ready to interview you. I found a review of your book. The Moral Imagination, and the subtitle mm-hmm. is The Art and Soul of Peace. I think this was in uh-huh. a conflict resolution publication. Do you know the review I'm talking about? Uh, there have been a number, I, okay. but probably so, yeah. Okay, so he, says, he yeah. says, even before reading this book, I admit to flinching at first sight of the title. I almost always yeah. experience a it's visceral. Robert Benjamin. Okay. <laughs> I almost always experience a visceral tension and tightening of my muscles in response to words like moral, peace, and soul. The field of conflict management has always been a magnet to many with fuzzy, feel-good, idealistic notions that well-intentioned beliefs anchored in a spiritual, if not religious, foundation can counteract destructive conflict and violence. Now, he went on to say, had I not read this book, the loss would have been mine. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think that the reaction he had to some of the words is, is not um, unique. And um, I just wanted to start... Uh, just by hearing how you think about that and, uh, you know, what, what you mean. I mean, let's really be, really work hard to not use words as shorthand, but say what you mean. I mean, so you do talk about the art and soul of peace building and moral imagination. So tell me what, what that really can, connotes um, for you. Yeah. Well, on, on the latter, the moral imagination, um, I, I certainly am not the first to have used that term. In fact, in the book itself, I I discovered as I was starting to use it uh, more actively, which came after September 11, because mm-hmm. I was making um, I was writing a few essays that actually circulated fairly widely on the 
on the web around the opportunity that that moment posed for us to employ a kind of an imagination that was the very kind that I was finding over and again that people that I worked with in settings of repeated and very significant levels of violence needed to use in order to extricate themselves from those cycles, somehow to break out of a cycle of violence while you're still living in it. And so I I was using that phrase um, in part because I thought that it was going to require an enormous imagination, but it was also going to require a capacity to think beyond the immediate uh, sorts of responses that many of us were hearing, I think many of us felt, in the aftermath of uh, September 11. And it was then I started to look closer at the phrase and discovered that it it goes, it, it actually goes all the way back, probably to Edmund Burke may have been the first one to use it in the late um, 1800s. And uh, he he talked about it uh, in in reference to his uh, view of the French Revolution at the time. Hmm. Um, but what what I was what I was after was um, a combination of things that the book itself tries to outline that were based on experiences that I had had f- very directly in a number of locations and indirectly, that is through colleagues and in support of some work that p- other people were doing. Uh, and they were quite varied from from um, the border area between Kenya and Somalia, where there were a set of women who in extraordinary ways uh, stopped a war, uh, to West uh, um, Africa in northern Ghana, where the actions of a certain set of people in a very specific moment in time, the actions of a young man vis-a-vis somebody who was really... Um, putting his particular tribe down and they were on the verge of very open warfare, prevented what could have been an outbreak of violence that might have um, emulated what was happening in Sierra Leone and Liberia, to a group of peasants of probably the most extraordinary group that I've come across in Colombia, who started uh, somewhat spontaneously a a nonviolent movement that initiated the first peace zones, both in Colombia and and throughout the uh, world, Uh, to a professor that I met in Tajikistan when I was working there (laughs) who told his personal story of being asked to go up and try to convince the last of the the commander warlords to come down and join the inter-Tajik negotiations. In each of the stories, um, there, there was an element of something very unexpected, but there was also, a, I found, sort of four qualities that I made reference to then from there on out as the moral imagination. And the first was, and all four had to do with a certain kind of imagination that people brought to it. Okay. The first was an ability to imagine uh, yourself in a relationship with your enemy. That is to, to envision a, a web of relationships that's inclusive of your enemy. And that if that's not present, peace building itself collapses. That the first and most significant element of peace building is that you have to imagine that your futures are tied in such a way that you have and recognize a form of interdependence. Uh, The second was that um, people never fell into a a kind of a simple um, dualistic understanding of the options that they had where it was always an either or choice. Mm. You're with us or you're against us. You're on that side or you're this side or you're in favor or not in favor of this idea. What they sustained was, by my view, a, a form of curiosity. They they were always 
asking something beyond what was immediately visible or what was the main line that was given to them to explain a very complex situation. Yeah, you used so the term in, paradoxical curiosity. Yeah, paradoxical in the sense that uh, paradox is not contradiction. It's two things or three things or four things that are different but ultimately are tied to each other in a form. And that's mm-hmm. actually the genius of complexity is that while it can feel overwhelming when we're in the middle of it, it keeps offering up new ways to understand something that doesn't require you to choose um, one option against another. And that, that ability to sustain curiosity, I found over and again, is, is so important in, in, you're asking about concrete components around what we mean by peace building. Yeah. The, the, the capacity to keep looking beyond what's most immediately visible and to imagine, even though if it's not Im- immediately there and present, that there are possibilities that make things that we don't yet understand uh, come to the fore was very much about that. But I also got curious about the word curious, uh, if you yeah. want the definitions, <laughs> because the, the root uh, etymology of the word traces, um, interestingly, to the word, what would essentially the word care. So a, a word like mm-hmm. curator, a person who cares for the museum, uh, has the same root as uh, the word curiosity. In Spanish, for example, curar, which means to heal, or cura, which oh. means a priest, all share the same uh, root um, uh, of curiosity. the word. It's, so uh, curiosity isn't sort of the nosy neighbor that's getting in your business. Curiosity is actually about caring enough to keep looking, looking beyond what is uh, immediately there. And that, in essence, in a conflict, I think, is one of the one of the keys. So that was the second form of imagination. You have, you have a question. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I, 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 am sure you. It's occurred to you that um, that what you're describing of 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 not setting up an either or of holding different ideas um, of, of this paradoxical curiosity, in fact. Um, very much contrast with American media and political culture. I mean, the way we resolve every conflict or debate every problem. <laughs> yes, no, it's. I mean, one I know our... that's not where you've done most of your work, but I'm hearing the contrast as you're describing it. Yeah, no, it's very much the. I mean, it's one of the big challenges we have is that we we want to move immediately to uh, who who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and who's right and who's wrong. And there's an enormous complexity that underlies a lot of these issues that then is uh, dismissed. Mm -hmm. And it is in the midst of that complexity and being able to hold uh, present multiple ways that it might be understood and seen that I think is the kind of imagination that's necessary for discovering and moving toward uh, more creative ways forward Mm. on those issues. So that, that was a kind of a second of the four. If you want the other two quickly, the third, the, the third one was um, simply the whole notion of creativity itself. That is, yeah. that most of the stories that I were, it was a bit of a professional crisis uh, at one point because the places that seemed to make the most interesting innovations didn't have anything to do with what we were doing in the professional field of peace building. They, they were people who in very common ways innovated mm-hmm. uh, extraordinary ideas, but they had enormous creativity. And my, my curiosity became rather quickly over, over the decades that I had worked at this as to why, why we were not um, expending more energies uh, trying to hone and develop and encourage and nurture um, the artistic process as yeah. part of what we do with conflict as opposed to kind of the technical management process, which is what we're often trained to do. We, and I want to, I do want to, I want to go into yeah. that. I, um, you know, yeah. I think though, before you keep going, I think what would be helpful is, um, 
let's keep talking about all of this, about these qualities, but um, in a context. So, I mean, l- just tell me, I don't know where you've been in the... So when I look at your resume, I mean, you, what, have you done mediation, conflict resolution in 25 countries or something? Was it? Yeah, probably so. <laughs> so it, the resume is about five years out of date. So okay, probably, so 50 but now. Yes. But wh- so, so where have you been in the last six months or the last year? And, may, you know, maybe someplace that's new and maybe someplace you've been going for for decades. Yeah. Um, well, um, yeah, I, you know, the last uh, period of my life, I made some conscious decision actually to, to bring things a bit more in control and not feel so... Uh, spread because of the level of uh, requests and demands that I get that I have narrowed to a number of places that I'm working uh, longer term. So the most significant of those right now that, so my last six months are mostly around uh, Nepal, Colombia, and the Philippines. And um, Nepal is a 10-year commitment. I'm in my seventh year on that. And it was of the three, the newest of those that I've worked with. Uh, Colombia and the Philippines, I have uh, worked since the uh, late 1980s and have made regular visits and have had some initiatives that I've been plugging away at that are ongoing um, for now, um, you know, close to two decades. So, so how, did these, how did these relationships form? Are, are you invited by people or groups who are involved in a conflict? Uh, yes, it, they, each of these has a little different, um, a little different entry point. Mm-hmm. Nepal was by far the most unusual of those. The vast majority of the places that I've worked have come because of some form of pre-existing relationship, and I would say of those um, mostly connected to uh, religious and church-related institutions. Um, and that was the base that I worked out of um, for many years, of course, with Mennonite Central Committee. On the one hand, uh, I worked with their international and domestic conciliation programs. And with Eastern Mennonite University, where uh, I still am a distinguished scholar, although I'm no longer there um, uh, more than uh, you know a time or two a year to meet with students or to deliver a short course, uh, the program there would have had a lot of outreach into those same areas. So a lot of the invitation came via um, existing relationships in the wider church and in particular development organization world of okay. NGOs. Uh, in Nepal, it was a bit more unusual. It, ha- it has a bit of a story to it, and it's somewhat, um, I mean, it's the only time that it's really happened to me in, in this particular way. Uh, there was a, there's a, a foundation in Northern California, in Redding, California, called the McConnell Foundation, who in the late 1990s had um, initiated one international effort, which was focused on Nepal. And they were working mostly in areas of development and um, uh, some work on issues of domestic violence and women's rights. Uh, the civil war in Nepal disrupted rather significantly almost all the development work in the areas where they had initiated it. And the person that they were working with uh, was a, a support to two or three key Nepalis who were kind of informally shuttling between the Maoist movement that was at the time uh, in arms against uh, both the king and the government. Mm. Um 
And they had several rounds of uh, failed negotiations, even though they thought they had put it in place. And so they sent through a, a request to the foundation for some help in looking more carefully at both peace building and approaching um, approaches to negotiations in a context of a civil war. Uh, through a set of contacts, um, the person, Karen Bennett, who's from the McConnell Foundation, um, set up a phone call with uh, a col this colleague in Nepal and myself and Bill Yuri, who is uh, also here in the Boulder area. And out of that phone call, they basically said, you know, if we could, we'd like to just come spend a day with you to talk through what we're doing. Hmm. And so about five days later, to our surprise, they uh, flew in from Nepal. And we sat for a day and a half, and they were asking if we begin to look um, at the range of issues that Nepal is facing, what should we do if we want to become more serious about helping to end the war? And our recommendation, a recommendation I've been giving for years to most NGOs, nobody has ever listened to me before. Uh, <laughs> but they is did? That if you want, yeah, they did. I said, you know, if you, basically I said, if you want to make a difference on this particular kind of work, you need to commit at least a decade. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't do it on the basis of a one to two year project. And um, a couple months later, they uh, they approved the movement into uh, supporting peace building and made it a 10-year commitment. So I'm in my seventh year of work with them. I go um, usually between three. The last few years has been five times a year and working mostly at grassroots level, but also involved in some high-level negotiations with uh, the people that are involved in the peace agreement there. So here's where you so. sound very un-American again, you know. I mean, did, yeah. you talk about it, right? You, I've, I've, you've written this, too, that you insist on a 10-year perspective rather than a one- to two-year perspective. And, and, and I think you very interestingly make a distinction between long-term strategy and short-term response. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> well, it's actually long-term strategy helps to create... Um, a, a shift from being crisis-driven to being crisis-responsive, as, as I see it. One of the difficulties we have in a lot of these settings where there's repeated cycles of violence is that people uh, are always jumping from the, whatever the, the crisis of the week and the month or the six-month period is and rare, rarely have time to put into place the kind of infrastructure and support that's needed for the, the deeper changes that are a part of that uh, particular system and location. And that's the part that I have um, consistently tried to bring into focus. That is that you, you have to have some clarity about the change that you're trying to work on or the range of changes mm -hmm. in order to know how to respond to emergent crises in ways that are connected to that longer-term strategy. And that's the part that's difficult to do if you're simply moving on the basis of a six-month, one-year, or two-year two project cycle because it's far too um, embedded in a short-term understanding of the deeper changes that are needed. So, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the conflict um, that, that looms so large in, well, in a global imagination, but certainly also in American imagination, would be the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? And when yeah. I, just when I read this distinction you make, <clears throat> I mean, I know there are a lot of good people and have been a lot of good people over many years involved in this, but it does start to look to me like, 
we talk about wanting peace in the Middle East, but in fact, our approach is a sequence of short-term responses, right? It, yeah, very much so. I think, you know, in, in the essay that I wrote right after September 11, which was probably one of the most widely read things that I've ever written, it was written on a floor in an airport in Guatemala, stuck not being able to get home because all the airwaves, you know, all the airports had been shut for a number of days. But it, I said at that point, and I still would stand by it, that I think the, that was a, a unique historic moment where particularly we in the United States could have brought to bear a form of imagination. And that the, one of the keys in responding in a different way to that crisis would have been to say that we are now unexpectedly on the global scene rather than... Um, primarily pursuing a military response to those who affected the attacks, we are going to place extraordinary effort on pushing forward on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. I think there was no greater platform and moment historically where we had the moral cachet hmm. to do that than that uh, year or two that followed it. That maybe, And I, I still think that we had missed a historic opportunity. Mostly, I think, I, I have not worked extensively in Palestine and Israel. I've had a lot of students come through, and I've done a lot of work with right. people, trying uh, various organizations that are trying to work with it. But it's not been one of my regions of um, direct uh, experience and expertise. But my sense is that that first quality that I talked about in the moral imagination is the one that's the hardest to mobilize. That is to imagine that your the quality of your grandchildren's future is actually tied to the quality of your enemy's grandchildren's future. Right. I mean, that's and that <laughs> it's just a simple thing, but it's very, very hard. People simply have not been able to fully bring that to, to fruition. I think you've you've talked about how you've seen that violence destroys a person's capacity to perceive themselves as an integrated part mm-hmm. of a whole of creation. And I mean, that is, I mean, that makes it difficult, if if not to say that it just makes it feel impossible for people to see themselves in a web of relationships that has to include their enemies and, 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 and some imagination about their enemies' grandchildren, right? I mean, it, it's almost like you're asking the impossible of people. Well, it's it's the impossible until you consider the alternative, which we've watched now evolve in so many places across decades, half centuries. Right. Colombia's a half century, Middle East can go back centuries. Um, in other words, the, the notion that it's more realistic to pursue the other avenue, the one that's supposed to be more pragmatic, shows itself over and over again to, to basically reseed the, the very things that create the cycles of violence that we're trying to, to uh, supersede. Right. It can't be done except by which we begin to imagine ourselves as a... Um, and here, I think, you know, is where uh, very deeply, for me at least, the faith tradition begins to inform this so significantly, to begin to see ourselves as um, uh, in a creation of uh, a, a creator God of whom we are children, of whom we are ultimately brothers and sisters. And to imagine that we have a human family that we're dealing with and not, a, not a, um, uh, a set of enemies in which we somehow will be better off if we are isolated from or eliminate the other or completely protected from the other, 
misses the much deeper sense of who we are as a humanity and the things that we need to do in order to survive on this globe. And have you been in situations where um, where that beautiful idea, which which can sound abstract, when when you know, especially when there are generations of violence, where people have transcended that, where people have come to see that with enemies? Absolutely, yeah. So the the example I, I, I can give you three or four, um, but I'll, I'll pick one. The example <laughs> of the uh, um, the peasants in an area called La India in Colombia who um, live in a part of the country that has been hit and overrun over and over again by different armed groups moving through their territory and demanding their allegiances from left to right, from the leftist guerrilla movements to the rightist-based paramilitaries that emerged uh, in response to those leftist uh, movements to the national military that at various times collaborated in different forms uh, or were pursuing armed response to those groups. Um, there was a point at which um, a, a movement emerged, uh, and it's known as the um, peasant. Basically, it's uh, called the Peasants' Movement of the Karari River, which is the river along which they live. And it started, um, its inception began when a rather notorious uh, captain of um, of the uh, uh, connected to the paramilitary as a commander convened a, a group of peasants from up and down the river to an open meeting in which he was um, was opening line was I've come today to forgive you. Yeah. Uh, he, essentially, his forgiveness was that he he was wanting them to take weapons up in order to form a kind of a, a, a civilian militia that would fight against uh, his enemy, which was mm. the guerrilla movement. And there was a speech made that day by um, a, a middle-aged um, peasant, a campesino fellow whose name is Josue Vargas, that w- was so powerful that even today, in the, and I've been down quite a few times to that area, People can recite that speech by memory. This is now 20, maybe 23 years later. Uh, he, he essentially, um, when, when the, uh, the, the story basically is the following, that the captain uh, brought his armed men, kind of encircled the plaza where several hundred of the peasants were gathered, and they were told that they had four options that day. Option one was to take the weapons that they were being offered and to join the side of the uh, captain. Um, option two was to leave and go join the guerrilla movement, and if they did, they would come for them. Uh, option three was that they could become one of the millions of displaced people in Colombia, simply leave the area entirely. And option four was that they could stay, but then if they stayed and did not take the weapons, they would be killed. Those were the four options they had. And, and you can imagine if you're in a plaza of several hundred people mm. standing, listening to this, surrounded by armed men, uh, that everyone was nervous and hoping that nobody said anything stupid to unleash yet another of the many massacres that they'd seen in that area. When out of the blue came Josue Vargas's voice, and he sim- he said, you know, these are the words basically he said, Capitan, he said, I, just a minute, what, what, what do you have to forgive us? We've never killed anybody. We've never gone to anybody's house and dragged them out of the house. And these weapons you want to give us, you, explain to us what good any weapon has done 
in Colombia for things that we have. There are thousands of men in arms, and it's brought nothing. We don't need weapons. We need seeds. We need a roadway that we can carry our vegetables and products out on. We need better tools, but we don't need weapons. And you, Captain, you want us to join your side to fight them. But we know who you are. We all know who each of us is in this plaza. We know that you used to fight with the guerrilla, and now you're with the paramilitaries. And now you, a side switcher, you want us to join your side against them. Well, today we have decided we are going to think for ourselves. We are not going to join your side. We're not going to join their side. And we are not going to leave this place. And they formed what's known as the ATCC that week. The miracle was they weren't all shot on the spot. Right, right. Within, <laughs> within the week, within the week, they had put out the principles. Their very first principle was to join the quota for joining their organization. This Campesino organization was uh, not money, but was a commitment. And the commitment was this. We choose to die before we kill. The second one principle, we have no enemies. Hmm. And that, that brought them to a commitment to dialogue, that we will seek out every armed group in our region and we will talk to them about what we are asking and what we want respect for in our areas. But isn't the and hard the, part of this that how do you what, – what, what's in it for the armed groups to come into negotiation, right? I mean, these, these powerless yeah. people who are, under, are in danger by them clearly have a so, stake. Yeah. So this group set out systematically to talk with every armed group. And they declared the first peace zones that are known uh, in Colombia, in fact, were known anywhere in the world, that what's in it for the armed groups. The question becomes how and in what ways do you deal with, a, with a, an organized civil society that refuses to pick, pick up weapons? And it, almost immediately, there were a range of things that began to move into place. Uh, among those, a very sophisticated capacity to understand the differences that people had and to negotiate spaces where they would have respect. So little, little um, signs went up on the villages that were involved in this that said, you're welcome here, but leave your weapons on the outside of town. It sounds like an Old West kind of a yeah. movie where you had uh, a, you know, a small enclave. And, and in this case, there was no sheriff that was mandating that with a gun. They, they literally... Um, began a process in which they, I mean, one of their principles was, we will seek to understand those who do not understand us. And they, they systematically set about a range of conversations over and again with, with these armed groups. Now, this organization has existed for the past 24 years. Now, it's had its ups and downs in a variety of ways, and it certainly has not avoided um, of violence and uh, various times where there were massacres. In fact, Jose, Jose Vargas and four of the leaders were assassinated uh, about four years later. Mm. But the movement itself has endured, and it is an extraordinary thing. So when you're asking for an example, what I'm, what I'm giving you here in this example are not people who are coming from a place and a location where they can be distant from the conflict and therefore not have to deal with violence okay. or are enclaving themselves in such a way that they have no interaction with those people who are actually a threat to them. You are looking at, at, at a way in which they shifted the view and approach to enmity. They changed it. 
And they did that systematically across several armed leftist movements, the paramilitaries, and the national military. And they did it primarily through very um, um, astute forms of uh, dialogue and negotiation. But they also did it through a tremendous capacity to organize themselves as a movement at a local level. Right. So this this brings me to another um, point you make about uh, mass and movement, and mm-hmm. um, y- you know, uh, and the difference between social change and uh, a movement. So you, for example, critical mass is one of these terms that's entered our vocabulary. You note that the peace movement itself has often fallen prey to replicating this idea of conceptualizing social change as a matter of raising public awareness, which leads to a numbers game, and that numbers are ultimately what matters. And mm-hmm. you you dispute that. You, I mean, in this this story you just told, and it, it, a lot of the stories you tell um, are are about change that starts small. Yes. And yeah. in fact, that never never becomes a numbers game, even even if the change is sustained and profound. Yeah. No, and, and you're, you're pointing to a, a little sh- a shift in terms that I use, which was a shift from critical mass to critical yeast. Right. Uh, <laughs> That's what you want I, to talk I, about. Yeah, critical well, yeast. The, the, because it, 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 what it begs is the very, the, um, both the, the strategy that you're pointing to, but also the kind of the quality of, uh, of space that you're trying to create. The, the, the importance is an ability to bring together an improbable set of people, a small number. They don't have to be large in number, but a small number of people who might not normally be together. So the basic idea is how, how do you get people from very different backgrounds, viewpoints, and um, um, experiences in a given conflict to coordinate together? And the quality of their relationship is more important than the quantity of people that are initially involved because it's going to be that that, that shifts it. My it, my it criticism more, of the yeah more important to to the, to the impact that they can ultimately have the impact and the sustainability of the changes that they're pursuing okay. exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, so the criticism you you may mention of um, the the peace movements generally peace movements often emerge. Um, by bringing together sets of people who have a, are opposed to something, but not necessarily on the basis of something of what they're in favor of. And a lot of peace movements actually function on the basis of trying to increase their number by getting more people to think like they do. And I think it's been one of the, the errors, our, our incapacity to be in relationship with people who are not like-minded and not like-situated in terms mm-hmm. of the social... Um, levels from local communities to high-level uh, political processes, that, wh- that w- what we attempt to do is to create more people that think like we do. And I think the, the difficult work of peace building is to create a quality of relationships among people who don't think alike. And that's precisely what I think is so um, distressful for a lot of uh, folks right now in terms of the American scene. Right, we, right. We, we, uh, the more <laughs> polarized it becomes. We are congregating with people who agree with everything we say. Yeah, and very little space for disagreement among us yeah. in our little enclaves, but also very little capacity to be in significant and quality relationship with people who think very differently. Yeah. But that, you know, that to me, Krista, was the original American dream. That's what it was all about. It wasn't about everybody being exactly the same. 
It was about a capacity to to um, uh, nurture and evolve a democracy that gave space to a wide variety mm-hmm. of viewpoints and opinion, but with a quality of exchange and um, discussion and uh, relationship that um, was not defined uh, by exclusively only meeting with people who are thinking the same way I do. Right. And we've ended up in a we've ended up in a context where we we can hardly. Uh, we can hardly even sit and uh, be in the same end of town with each other if we have a different viewpoint on a political spectrum. There's also kind a of a way issue. in which a narrow definition of democracy, which is who gets the most votes, then silences the people who got less votes. Yeah, <laughs> right. well, that's exactly. Um, <laughs> and, vote, and voting may be a very uh, poor parameter of the quality of democracy, I think, in a lot of... Uh, in, in a lot of ways, because mm-hmm. it's it's much more about uh, our capacity to sustain a constructive discourse around things that are a concern for our communities, our families, and our nation, than it is uh, about the the kind of divisive driving that begins to happen when um, an electoral period emerges that somehow is the marker of democracy when, in fact, what it often marks is how deep and how far has the polarization gone. Right, right, right. I want to talk about creativity, which is one of those core words that for you is part of the moral imagination that you've seen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you've been writing a lot, it seems to me, maybe um, more in recent years about... um, your realization that conflict resolution and and the the process of creating peace and social change is is as much a creative process as a as the application of tools and skills and templates. So, and this has a lot of implications for you. So, mm-hmm. um, is this something that you that you saw early on, or is this some a, a realization that has emerged for you through experience? I think it's been more emergent. Um, I mean, early on, especially when I got very serious about the studies and early training in, uh, formally in, in mediation and conciliation work, um, a lot of it focused on uh, analytical skills, how to take something complex and break it into its component parts, how to think creatively about negotiation and uh, et cetera, which uh, you know, were the elements that we often, we often worked with. There was a technical side of that, and the technical side in some ways is a bit mesmerizing when you first come into it. You, you learn approaches and skills that accompany those approaches and how you might uh, To mediation. Use those. And yeah, mediation uh-huh. in particular I think has been a big growth area in a lot of places, uh, but the same would be true of negotiation um, and even certainly peace building. One of the shifts that came for me earlier um, that he is the basis from which I think the concern about creativity emerges much more in, in a later set of years was to move from an understanding that what I was involved in as being defined as conflict resolution in a narrow sense, that is finding a solution to a problem, to talking about and visualizing it as conflict transformation that included resolution approaches but that went beyond that because it went to the core questions of what are we trying to change and what kind of changes are needed. And those may or may not be 
um, well suited by simply solving a problem. You can solve a problem and not change anything. That happens all the time. You <laughs> right. know, that's the big criticism that a lot of people in Latin America, Asia, and Africa have of the field that I work in. Is huh. that people come in with miraculous uh, uh, process and technique and help people uh, hammer out uh, solutions to a problem, but don't change anything, and so it keeps coming back. So again, give me an example of, you know, where, tell me a place or a situation that comes to mind when you think about this distinction between solving a problem and, well, and where this creativity kicks in. Yeah, let's, so let's look for a moment. At just You asked what I did the last six months. The last six months I've been three times in Nepal, so it's kind of on the floor of my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the groups that I'm working with is... Um, and two organizations that have very extended uh, membership. They refer to them as user groups. One is a user group around forestry, and one is a user group around water. And we have a process to work with them to add to the things that they have been doing on conservation and good use, uh, especially at the community level, to a greater capacity to understand and deal with um, uh, the conflicts that emerge around the use of natural resources. Now, this is mostly at a local level, although both of the organizations are large. One has about 8 million members and one about mm. 2 million members. And so I'm working with a small subset of those to develop an approach to local natural resource conflicts that in and around and out of the Civil War period have become very divisive and often move quickly to confrontation and violence between different groups. Now, in this subset... I have people who are recently released bonded laborers, slaves. I have people from very low caste ends of the caste system. I have people who are have been involved for 20 years or more in forest conservation. Uh, we have some people who are lawyers. So it's a they ha, the the user groups have an interesting mix, about half men mm. and half women. Now, so um, last time I was there. Uh, I'm going to start by describing a photograph that uh, that we looked at. Okay. It was a photo. It was a photograph of a community meeting, and in this community meeting, there were about uh, 150 people, and they were s- spread around, se- seated in a in an open space community area. Uh, in they were seated in different groups. There was a landless group that had been displaced from the war. There was a um, bonded laborer group, that is a group that had come out of um, bonded slavery. Oh, you and know, these categories they, are just so uh, amazing. They're mind-boggling. Yes. Yes, they're mind-boggling. <sighs> um, there was a group of people involved with the forest conservation group, that uh, one of the groups that I work with. There was a district forest office, uh, and they had a dispute. And the dispute was that the forest user group had coordinated with the district forest office a bounded area that they were responsible for conserving and the wood out of which people use for cooking uh, was to be shared among the people from their community. Mm. But they had encroachers that had come, and these encroachers were some displaced communities who were landless, who showed up and started using a part of the forest, and bonded laborers who were removed from their area where they were bonded laborers were now free, but they had no place to go. So they also ended up coming to the edge of this forest and started using it. Now, so at one level in the photo, what you see is a conflict resolution process. That is that there's a community gathered to talk about um, how are we going to solve the problem of who has right to use the wood and the forest among the groups that are here. 
But at a second and third level, and here is where I think transformation and then some of the creativity starts to come in. Um, this is a, a problem that's faced by many communities across Nepal, which is a very poor country. And you are not in a situation where you have people who are professionally prepared or who are likely to be professional mediators. So how would you, how would you open up a process by which people from the community that have the conflict are able together to convene and hold a process that includes every one of the people that are involved, but without outside professional help. This is what kind. you want to guide them towards? Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, so in the photo, mm -hmm. if I had it and we could see it visually for you, there was a group of about 12 people. Now here I'm going to start mentioning some things very Nepali and some creativity. Okay. This group of 12 people um, essentially have been a part of the process that I've been involved in. We've been experimenting. This has taken, it's taken us seven years to get to this photo, Krista, to put it other ways. Uh, okay. this, right. this set of 12 people, um, there were two that were standing up front who looked to be the most visible facilitators. There was a young woman. She's about 21 years old. This young woman should have been sold into prostitution. But because she got connected to the forest user group, she kind of rose up out of that and into a place where she had a little more of a possibility. And standing beside her was a young man about 24 years old who was a former slave, uh, bonded laborer, just recently released. The two of them were the front facilitators. Hmm. Now, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, to imagine what I'm trying to describe here. The one, the young man is actually the enemy group of the young woman, meaning hmm. that... This bonded. This is a, a person who came from the group that encroached, and he's helping to facilitate a discussion in the community with a young woman who is a representative of the forest user group who felt they got encroached upon. Around that circle, there are eight more of them, and essentially, we they landed on some interesting terminology. We've been using. Uh, the approach of the spider, that's one area of creativity. That is that a spider thinks spatially, and so a spider would ask, what are the key anchor points for my web? They are applying that notion of a spider to creating a spider group, and this eight to ten people that are the facilitating group are, in fact, a subset of the people in conflict. Okay. But they have very carefully over months been circulating around their community preparing for this coming, this gathering of people. Now, the gathering they refer to as, um, and here's a bit more creativity for you, Akwati. And Akwati is an, the national Nepali soup. It's a, it's, <laughs> okay. The national Nepali soup is made up of nine beans. And each bean has its own process of fermentation. And the reason why Kwati was chosen by them at one point was they, as we began to develop the question... How, how do communities that have natural resource conflicts, how can they develop a process from and with the groups that are in conflict without expecting outside facilitation help? Hmm. How will they do that while they remain people that are parts of the groups that are in conflict? And the tension that came up was, am I an activist for my bonded laborers or am I a facilitator? Uh, you know, there's a tension that's there. Right. Uh, that would have to be. And so the metaphor that they came up with was this notion of kwati soup. 
Uh, you have nine beans. Every bean retains its flavor. That is, every bean is linked to a group and still is very much a spokesperson, an advocate, and connected to the understanding of that group. But when they're brought together, the nine beans create a flavor that's good for the whole. Hmm. So there have to be some of us that also think about the good of the whole, of the community. And this is and where that's, you, yeah. you said you've, so, you've made a 10-year commitment, right? I mean, this is yes. where that makes so much sense, that what you're talking about is something that can be very transformational and yet will take time. Right. It will take time. And so now, now we come to the difference between a resolution and a transformation. Okay. A resolution would be that, that in the period of meetings that they hold, they come to a solution for that particular problem that's faced by the community at that time. Mm-hmm. Transformation is seeing that these former enemies at a local microcosm actually have coordinated and held a container for a community conversation, not on issues of an abstract nature, but on survival issues, water and wood. They cook with wood, they need the water to, 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 to survive. So for them, these, these are not issues that are remote and sort of interesting ones at a, uh, where they may have ideological difference. These are issues about how they're gonna survive and have food for tomorrow and the next week. Now, in that context, we have a whole range of changes that start to come to the fore that we're working on. One is that the, the community is not dependent on somebody bigger and stronger to decide for them, but they have a greater capacity to do it themselves. Right. A second is that their relationships start to change. They begin to shift their understandings of who they are as a community and how they can work at local levels uh, at, these, uh, at these kinds of issues. A third one is that when conflict emerges, the two patterns that have been most common Uh, are not the only two possibilities, one being confrontation that leads to violence and the other being avoidance or a kind of a win-lose where one people, you know, the landless people just move on to the next community. So the whole way they framed in that photo I want to go back to the image, when they reported back what they had done, they brought back that it took them two meetings to arrive at the way that they would establish what they were doing, which essentially was how... Do we conserve the forest and make sure that people have a livelihood and a lifehood around us? So the livelihood, especially for the landless and the Dalit, which is the untouchable, right. and the, um, uh, the bonded slaves. So how to conserve the, f- the forest and provide livelihood for everyone in our community. Now, I thought that was a brilliant framing. Mm-hmm. And, and it was done exclusively by a set of people from within their own community. I think, you know, just something you just said that feels so important is, you know, that not only are they framing a new way of being into the future, but that the old ways of dealing become less possible. Yes. B- become impossible to fall back on. I mean, yeah. that really is change. <laughs> right. that, that is change, yeah. And in some ways, you know, because I work at both a grassroots level and a very high political level, in some ways, to be very honest, the sophistication by which they're doing it at a local level uh, is leap years ahead of how politics is typically done, mm. which is an all-or-nothing kind of a format in which every decision is gauged primarily on whether if we haven't won, we have at least assured that the other cannot carry victory away. Mm. And where the bottom common ground becomes some form of um, sort of weak compromise, but basically it's assuring that no one else gets ahead of us. Mm. 
And I think that's, you know, that those are the challenges that we really have. You know, you, um, your daughter, your, your book, The Moral Imagination, you also wrote with your daughter, who has followed in your footsteps. And um, A recent book. We, we've, it's a new book. Oh, that's actually, sorry. That's that the new book, together. When Bl- Blood yeah. and Bones Cry Out. Is that When right? Blood and Bones Cry yes. Out, uh, the soundscape. So, right, the, the soundscape. The soundscape of uh, healing and reconciliation. So she, yeah. you know, is the, the way I understand it, she's also worked with um, this absolutely horrific phenomenon of child soldiers. In especially in some of these conflicts in Africa, in West Africa, West yeah. Africa. Her experiences were mostly in Sierra Leone and uh, um, refugee camps in northern Ghana, coming out of Liberia. Right, and yeah. so the two Angie, of you, Angie, mm-hmm. and so the two, yeah. you and Angie writing together have um, mm. talked about this phrase that we often use um, about unspeakable violence. Yes, and in fact, that the ways human beings. Mm, transcend or give voice to what they need to give voice to sometimes it's not through words and process but through poetry and music and that again mm-hmm. you know you might somebody might hear that and say oh how sweet <laughs> how fluffy yeah. right but you um you you see these things as essential to survival in the most excruciating circumstances so again is that something you've discovered across the years Yes, I think very much so. And, and a lot of it, um, by having been very close to people who have suffered uh, not just a single event of violence, which is already horrific in itself, but have lived through repeated um, cycles of, of that kind of violence and displacement. And what, what we were exploring was that so much of the literature that's written about um, healing, trauma healing in particular in the field that we work with, and reconciliation is often written from the standpoint of sort of the bigger picture of things that happen across time uh, with those processes. And so many authors will basically say, you know, uh, healing and reconciliation are not linear processes, but here are the stages or here are the phases. You know, they kind of lay out a, a way of doing it. And what we, what we were discovering at several levels was that many of the things that were most important to um, healing and reconciliation are in the realm not only of the unspeakable, but are often in the realm of things that are not linear. That is, that they are circular, they may be repetitious, they may mm-hmm. be ritualistic in form, uh, a whole range of things, because people have a capacity uh, to experience and feel something for which they cannot give um, good, clear, or fully explainable words. Mm-hmm. They're just words that just aren't there to do it. And so they often go around and around to try to get to a, a, an understanding of that. And so the book itself explores not only a range of stories from our experiences, but tries to look um, with somewhat wild abandon, actually, uh, to a range of windows or images or metaphors or approaches that are not linear. And essentially what we've, what we've come up with is that there are some very significant things that happen in healing and reconciliation um, that cannot de- be described as a person progressing from point A to B, but that are, in fact, very important elements of healing. Uh, one of those, for example, is uh, the, the, the notion that going in circles, we would typically say if you're looking at it from the lens of a, of a program that has 
funding that over the next year or two is supposed to produce something. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and it's, it's, applied, right. it's, it's applied to healing or reconciliation. Then, then going in circles is not going anywhere. When in fact, going in circles may be doing something that's very different. It may be about deepening. So if you, uh, we used um, uh, some of the work that's been done by um, a pair of um, sociologists, communication people known as uh, uh, Johnson and Lakoff, who wrote the book Metaphors We Live By. Mm. And, and they say that a lot of our metaphors, our metaphoric language has directionality to it. So, you know, um, something that's upward moving is somewhat progressive. It's feeling like it's rising, it's coming up. Where if it's, if it's deteriorating, it's going down. You know, it's kind of a, um, a way in which you can see how we use metaphors that provide a sense of, of right. direction. Right. What we found was that the directionality of healing and reconciliation, that often the circling and the repetitious circling, meaning that it might even be ritualistic in nature, is not aimed at programmatically moving from A to B, but it's about a form of deepening, and it's often deepening in, uh, internally. So, uh, you know, I, I, I somewhat facetiously um, tell my colleagues at Notre Dame where I teach, I said, imagine for a moment if the funding agencies were coming here to, uh, to Notre Dame and were inquiring about your behavior that they're noticing, which is you keep doing mass not only some of you every day, most of you at least once a week, is there something that's not effective about the way you're doing mass? <laughs> if you did it once, would it not be over? In other words, we, we don't right. apply that, we yeah. don't apply right. that uh, lens to something like mass or uh, music or other things. We, we understand that the purpose that it has is to create a space that permits you to get back in touch. Now, here's, here's where it becomes important. That, that words often move things to a head level explaining, right, but the right. violation lies the level of the bone, that something you feel in your, in your very core, but you may not have words to express. And so this notion of just a simple one of circling is that you are, you are creating a space where it's safe to go deep and from depth to go inside and from inside to go expansive. These are all metaphors that linguistically don't point to A to B, but rather point to a different way in which a change and or things that are happening can be understood for a person who is coming through repeatedly, especially uh, elements of, of violation. You know, you also talk about music um, in these, in these um, places of extreme conflict. And, and in fact, you, you point at taking something seriously that, that we've all had some kind of experience of. I mean, even if you think about, I don't know, the civil rights movement, the incredible role that music played, or the, oh. or the you know, the 1960s, um, how Pete Seeger got people singing, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And you, Absolutely. Right? And, 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 I mean, you've experienced this in many, many places, how music has this power to to be transcendent and to help people transcend the moment. I mean, think again, we've all experienced that in less extreme circumstances, but also to connect the mind and the heart, right? That, 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 that place where we try to put words around things and that level of blood and bone where we are, where we are inhabiting the experience. Yeah. Well, this, this was in part music, uh, among other things is based very much on, on sound and sound is based on vibration so the way we experience music is much more holistically. It's a whole body experience. And music, uh, sound, smell, there are several of our senses, 
are among the things that permit us to move, uh, transport us in time, actually. You can, hear mm-hmm. a sa- you can hear a song and it will take you back to a moment. Yeah. Or you, could, you can catch a certain smell and it will suddenly feel like you're transported. And this notion of transportability, we think, is, is a window into uh, several uh, places in which reconciliation and, and uh, healing would, be do well, would do well to give more consideration to. Right. One is that, that this idea that uh, vibration touches us and that quite often what people talk about when they talk about peace building, when they talk about violation, when they talk about a peace process, their biggest complaint is they don't have a voice in the things that are happening. Mm. Now, we often take the notion of voice out to the notion of power, which is one element of it. But there's another element that that word voice is a metaphor for, which is that uh, violation, violence, numbs people. It, it, leaves, it leaves people feeling numb. In fact, they, they, the first thing you hear when people try to explain what they're dealing with is they're trying to feel like a person again. Mm. Uh, curiously, by the way... Um, the etymology, although not everyone agrees with uh, those of us that have this particular view, but there is a persona in Greek goes back to the mask through which the voice was projected. Mm. Um, but mm. it also in in the Latin versions, person is a for sound, it, literally. A what? Um, a for sound. For sound. Son son in French and in Spanish, the word son s o n is the same as in English the word sound. And there's, a, there's an element that when we find that a lot of what's happening for a, a, the healing is about feeling like a person again, that those are things that fall below the speakable. They are, they are dealing with acts that were unspeakable, um, and they are moving into the arena of the ineffable. And in that, I think what music does is that it permits people to touch again. Mm. To, to feel touched by and to even maybe touch their own sense of personhood and voice. And so while you, you may not be able to explain, you may not be able to speak your way through certain things, there are times in which music and or sound may, in fact, um, permit that to happen in a much, in a much deeper way. This was uh, in Angie's work in West Africa, just as examples with, uh, on both on the side of poetry as well as some of the music. Much of the work with child soldiers who are coming through so many different kinds of identity. They were a, a, a child who had a mother and a father right. who then become motherless. Their, their parents were often removed from them, if not killed. Um, they are attached to a commander. She worked especially with young women. And Angie is your daughter again. You're, Angie you know. is my daughter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so her work was with uh, how and in what ways communities, and particularly women, worked with the reintegration of, of child soldiers. And so you have an identity of being um, a victim, but you also are brought into a, a fighting force where you become a part of something that uh, requires you to do violence for survival. So you become a perpetrator. Uh, you, you are a motherless, a child mother. They, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a mm-hmm. range of things that they're experiencing. What, what she saw rather clearly in, in the work that she was doing, that in the times when they were interviewing uh, young women who were child mother soldiers about their experience, they, they found a very sort of flat effect uh, reporting of their life story. 
It was for the purpose of conveying in an interview what their life story was. Trying but to speak they the were, unspeakable, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. to try to speak the unspeakable. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, we found uh, in the book, we, we cite a number of authors who talk about this flat effect notion. Right. There's no, one of them said there's no language reserved for violation. Mm-hmm. We don't know what language to go to. Mm-hmm. So it often becomes a very, especially in formal cases, whether it's court case or other things, it often becomes a very flat rendition right. of things that are enormously traumatic in order, uh, so it's that numbing effect of the violation. Right. When, when they went into, uh, I'll give two very concrete examples, they went into workshops where their primary focus with the child uh, women soldiers was uh, poetry. Uh, n- a number of them could not read or write. And so, but when the format of poetry permitted them to bring forward a voice that was nowhere present in the interviewing format, and it was a touching of things that little by little started to, to connect to other aspects of a reality, but it was a very different space in which they were working. On, on the other side of that coin was how particularly mothers and communities brought child soldiers back into communities that they, that is the child soldiers, had actually violated. Right. And among the modalities, especially in West Africa, was that many of these went back to rituals of rebirthing. Mm-hmm. So you, you would use a, a birthing ritual, which would typically be done when a child was born into a family or community. Oh. They used formats of those rituals in order to bring back um, uh, people into a, a sense of connection to the community again. And those almost invariably at one point or another involved singing. Right. Uh, and right. certainly in some instances, drumming, yeah. uh, all of which has sort of this vibrational component to it that sits at a, at a much different level than the ones that are more typically explained, especially in the, the um, therapeutic uh, understandings of, um, you know, right. psychological, uh, psychological counseling, right. which seems to be the least of the most uh, useful things in those contexts. Okay. Let me let me um let me just ask Chris. Can we go a little bit over if we can? We you ask the other side because we need to know if they've got it. My understanding is we do not have a hard stop. Okay. Um. Um. Did you bring some haiku? I did. Okay. Good. I, I don't want to go there quite yet, but I want to go there in a minute. Is it all right with you if we we may go a little bit sure. past? Okay. Um. All right. There's just so much we could talk about. <laughs> You know, this is uh, this doesn't this isn't this isn't linear. But I did I did want to bring up with you that I spoke with you in the earliest days of this radio project. Yeah, in fact, you know, my mom found it. No, I I haven't put it in to listen to. My mom was undoing some stuff in in her attic somewhere. Yeah, and she said, "Oh, I found this," and she sent it to me about two weeks ago. It was, it's a recording don't, of. I, don't I don't listen to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you were fine. I was not. So it was, but, but it was right after nine eleven, and yeah. okay, you used the term "loya jirga" with me. You uh-huh. you, yeah. you said to me because because when I spoke with you and we talked about just war and we talked about this article you wrote after nine eleven that you yeah. mentioned that was widely circulated, you said to me. If we go into Afghanistan, and I think in that moment we were poised to go into Afghanistan, yeah. um, you said the way peace is built in Afghanistan, the way conflict is resolved, are through these gatherings of elders. 
That's yes. that's where change happens. That's where decisions are made. That's, that's where, where the leadership. greatest potential. Yeah, the greatest potential. I have hardly heard the word, and then just very recently, here in mid two thousand ten, there was a massive jirga, which was covered pretty um, seriously by NPR and other media. And I, I went back to that conversation with you, and I, I thought, you know, did it take us these years in Afghanistan? I mean, I mean, we journalists as well as politicians to start paying attention to to the particular ways in which conflict is resolved in, in other societies, in that society in particular. Yeah. Well, I, th- I, think, it's, I think it's always been there. I think the, the, um, the, qu- the questions are so complex when there's international intervention at the level that it's happening right. and has happened in Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq. I think there are connections between you know these in terms of choices that were made and how they were approached. So a lot of the focus was, you know, if you sort of divide it out in big percentages, there's a huge percentage if you look monetarily at the military response. Obviously, it's been just massive. Then there was a massive response that would have accompanied that to try to reestablish some form of, 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 of a political structure that's functioning in order, I, you know, driven primarily by wanting to get international troops out, and particularly American troops, back out of those locations. And both of those things face enormous problems in, in Afghanistan if you take any kind of a long-term view. What, what is evolving, you know, more recently that you've seen emerging in the, in the news has been that the notion that underpinning much of the things that have to, to happen in order for a more constructive change to come forward is that you have to find ways to engage the traditional mechanisms by which decisions are made and consensus are, are sought and right. built. And that's where people have gravitated um, back, I think, to some of the notions of the Jirga um, and elders' conferences uh, in in the midst of the current uh, context. It's, it, it's, um, it's difficult to know if that will be possible given everything else that's happened and continues to happen, but certainly those kinds of approaches, I think, are the ones that have to be carefully looked at and worked with. I, you know, the kinds of things that, uh, again, Afghanistan is a place I've only, I've only been uh, a few times, uh, in, but it was in much earlier time periods to the border areas between Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. Um, so I, I don't have the kind of on-the-ground expertise that I would in some other locations. But what I, what I do have a keen sense of from some of the exposure and certainly with colleagues is that some of the key elements that we need to have a way of working with, take one, for example, policing, that a, that a, a, a hard, militarized, top-down approach to protective policing that controls neighborhoods purely by guns is li- not likely to have nearly the kind of transformative uh, capacity as one that is based much more on community uh, policing embedded closely with the structures of decision-making and where there is ability to move for both accountability and consensus building with more traditional ways of relating and working at um, uh, um, building, um, you know, respectful communities. And so you're starting to see some of that bounce up from 
places where they've been experimenting a bit more with that. Mm. And you know, when you say that, it just sounds like such common sense, right? Well, a lot of this always sounds like common sense, but what what holds the day on common sense in terms of where we put our money is that um, if you've got a if you've got a problem of this kind, bigger guns are going to control smaller guns, and that usually means that we just have more guns. Okay. And it does it doesn't give us any it has no it has no clear theory of change of how it is we're going to get to the other side of the bridge that we're trying to build. We mm-hmm. have absolutely no notion of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's where we're the weakest at is that we simply have not found ways to align what it is that we're trying to build with the methodologies by which we're going to get there. Okay. And those I think require us to take a longer approach much more nonviolent, much less militarized in many of these locations uh, than we have had historically. And at some point, we are going to see, as a human community, that it's common sense and that it it makes sense and that it's it's worth our... If you want to get a a bang for your dollar, Mm -hmm. it's not in in shooting things down and tearing things up. It's in knowing how to build up. It's in knowing how to create relationships to sustain. Our security is not tied to the quantity or the size of our weapons, it's tied to the quality of our relationships. That's the shift we have to make hmm. from a local community to a, a global community. Um, I'd like to know how you think about success, what that word means for you. And I wonder if, I always hate these questions where someone asks you to, you know, the biggest success, <laughs> number one. But talk to me about um, a situation you've been involved in that you define as a success and why. Well, I described one of those a little bit ago. I'm, I'm, I'm actually feeling like we've made some very interesting progress with this uh, community approach to natural resource conflicts in, yeah. in Nepal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, so the elements that I mentioned were the, one, were the ones I would lift out if I'm thinking at a grassroots level. Okay. So uh, there are changed relationships. There's an increased capacity for understanding and responding to conflict constructively. There's an increased ability for dialogue and to do so without a dependency on outside people. Those, to me, are important success markers. Now, they don't come at the end of a project of one or two years. They, they usually can be seen, I think, only in terms of decades. I, I would say, for example, that very dear colleagues that I have in West Africa, the West African Network for Peace Building, WANEP, initiated in a conversation in a classroom with a couple of, uh, of guys, the, the early director, Sam Doe, not President Sam Doe, it's another librarian, oh. Sam Doe, and then eventually Emmanuel Bombande. Uh, the, 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 the ability to build a, a network of peace building across the countries of West Africa, both Anglo and Francophone, where now they not only have a wide range of things internally that they're doing in each of the countries, but they have capacities to move regionally together and are even working at times directly at the level of uh, peace building with ECOWAS and other of the major units that are working at uh, peacekeeping in places that have been especially fraught with uh, violence. That, to me, is a success. It's a platform that has long-term viability and sustainability. It's rooted in the context. These are people that are increasing the number of... um, uh, younger rising peace builders up out of you know from across Nigeria to 
to um, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Togo, you, you list the West African countries. And I think that, that long term, that kind of platform is what's going to show a capacity to be responsive to unexpected crises that will continue to come in various of these countries, but also to the long-term transformations of how conflict is dealt with in that region. Uh, to the degree that we hope someday we never see a repeated Liberia or Sierra Leone again. Right. Um, so th- those th- that's the kind of thing that I would say. Now, the other one that I mentioned historically for me that was very, very instructive was, of course, the work that I did with the local mediation team in Nicaragua between the Mosquito Indians and the Sandinista government. Okay, tell me about the, that. The, the, this was in the 1980s, and it was my first real effort to support um, a team of people who were mediating, who were from the context and country within which they were mediating. So it wasn't, it was all, it was an all Nicaraguan team except for myself. And, you know, the success side of it was that over a number of years, it brought, it was able to bring together representatives of two sides of a war that ended that, um, the, the war and that violence was, and was probably a precursor to what eventually was the ending of the uh, the war between the Sandinistas and the Contras. The downside of that is that when you look back 10 or 15 years later, there's still the major issues that were being dealt with have not successfully found their transformation from poverty and um, uh, some exclusion, certainly for the Mosquito, the indigenous peoples, uh, to the uh, questions of um, the kinds of, of um, rights and platforms that were being talked about during the course of those negotiations. Uh, Nicaragua remains a country that, while not at war, has very significant forms of structural violence that haven't been fully dealt with. And that's where I, you know, I have always a, a kind of a crisis at a personal and professional level in some of this work. Hmm. The field that I am in is better at ending violence than it has been at building justice. Okay. And I think that's where we really have a lot of challenges and where so I've given a lot of my life work to actually more of a local community level is because I think the baseline infrastructure that will help shift long-term justice issues are ones that have to be um, encouraged and nurtured uh, from the grassroots up and not just from policy statements down, because it seems to never actually get down. Um, And, you know, I wonder, it seems to me also that we, and again, who's my we? You know, we media, the Western cultural imagination, Mm -hmm. we're not so good at seeing that kind of success and celebrating it. Um, I mean, even... You know, once something seems to be resolved, we forget that that resolution was possible. I mean, I think Northern Ireland, to me, is a stunning example of a conflict that earlier in my early adulthood was just another one of these examples of people who'd been killing each other for generations, right? This endless cycle of bloodshed. It was impossible to imagine an end to it. And, you know, as you're you're describing in Nicaragua, there's, there's it's not heaven on earth. But it is still this unfolding, evolving process, yeah, and it's yeah, a success no, it's, story. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a tale that change is possible, but we don't, it seems to me we don't dwell also culturally when that happens. Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. And Northern Ireland is such an interesting example because the, you look back at the Good Friday Agreement as kind of the pivotal agreement. That's the, you know, the... the um, 
the peace agreement that was signed. And we, we, that's very visible in the media, very much celebrated, looked at, you know, the questions of whether it will hold or not hold, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you take one, just take one of the issues that requires enormous transformation in Northern Ireland was policing. Uh, it, during the period of the Troubles, you know, and prior, it was 90-some percent uh, um, Protestant uh, uh, policemen, a mm-hmm. uh, very a small minority um, percentage Catholic. Uh, the policing was much resented by many of the Catholic uh, neighborhoods. Right, police stations it, were protected by British military. Yeah. So that that transformation of policing has been a, has been a significant one, but it's it's taken more than 15 years. In fact, only just a few years back did uh, did some of the major Catholic political parties actually sign on to parts of it because they still were were very skeptical that it could mm-hmm. happen. Uh, so and and Northern Ireland is a small compared compared to other locations it's small and has had huge investment in its peace process from Europe especially. Right. And um so we we often want things to happen in these locations around the world uh, and we kind of close our eyes to the to the depth and the history of what has come before and how much of a challenge it is to create the changes that people are talking about, and particularly in the time frames they're talking about. So Northern Ireland is a good one because I, I, I know very few media celebrations of policing in Northern Ireland. I've heard a lot around, you know, the, <laughs> the agreements uh, that were reached or the, the famous politicians who made statements. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. it is. A, it's a big challenge. So I'd love for you to um, read some of your haiku now. Uh, tell me, sure. tell well, me about haiku. Tell me, tell me what, what's happening well, I, and that's important and that yeah. matters to peacemaking and reconciliation. Well, I've gotten very interested in the connection between poetry and peace building over the last years. Uh, one, one of those insights and one of those areas of personal discipline for me was both discovering and working with, but then deepening um, a kind of a haiku understanding of complexity, which, as as I see it, is an ability um, not to simplify the complex, but to, to some degree the haikuist is constantly trying to capture the, the full complexity of a human experience in the fewest words possible. Mm. And that discipline is a very interesting one. And it requires uh, haikuists, um, uh, especially a big fan going back into its origins toward uh, Basho and Kikaku, a, a variety of these haiku Japanese poets. Their, their understanding of what they were doing uh, was about a kind of a way of being uh, in a context, particularly nature for many of the haikuists, and the link between the human experience and the experience of, of the richness of nature in a way that you could, you could fully capture the moment, the season, the human experience, but in this very short five-syllable, seven-syllable, five-syllable kind of a format. So for me, it started as a kind of an interesting discipline and curiosity. I started then working with this a lot with um, incorporating it into peace-building work and training that I was doing with people because I think it's one of the few things that may help, especially rising peace-builders. It encourages a respect for complexity while capturing some of the wholeness of that, but in a way that gets to the core of it, the heart of it. Mm. Um, 
uh, Oliver Wendell um, Holmes once wrote, uh, I would not give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for simplicity on the other side of complexity. And that's what I, I think the haikuist that. is, is what the haikuist is, is after. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do a variety of things. Um, one of them is that um, I've become much more respectful of, I think, the link between appreciating being in and feeling nature and noticing things that we're involved in when we're in settings of violence. For me, it's like a, a, a recuperation of sorts. But the other is to, that as I travel and work, I listen for haiku in people's conversation because what I find is that quite often when, when people say something and we all have a kind of a aha moment around what was said, it often is a capturing of the complexity, that simplicity on the other side, and it comes out very close to, if not actually in the form hmm. of a haiku. And I could give you one or two of those if you want. Yes. I refer to them as conversational haiku, haikus or poetry in conversation. That is, that people don't take notice of their poetic capacity in the midst of their conversation. So I take note of it. And so okay. I, jot, I jot notes of it. And I sometimes, I, I don't often keep all of these in sort of my own repertoire. I give them back to people. Mm. Uh, in fact, I've done whole, I uh, try to do whole summaries of meetings sometimes just by capturing a range of these haikus. I think you were in one yes, of those. Yes, I was at a meeting once. and you send us all the haikus at the end. They were yeah. fantastic. Yes. Yeah. So if you want, let me start with yeah. one or two that are of that nature. Okay. W- one from Sister Mary Tarsicia, who is a Catholic uh, sister in northern Uganda, whose entire convent has now been turned over to working with child mothers. And they have a small place and many, many young women who were kidnapped as part of the uh, Lord Resistance Army's movement. In the context of working as a team of people over several years, I worked with United Religions Initiative Mm -hmm. that works with a cross and interreligious dialogue. Uh, Sister Mary was a part of a team from Northern Uganda that was a member of our uh, five uh, group experimentation with the moral imagination. Mm -hmm. And on one instance, she explained her life story, which is an extraordinary one because she, in her life, she's now in her 60s. But as a young novice um, in her early teenage years, she was actually forced into the bush by Idi Amin. So she has spent her entire life, one decade after another, facing this range of difficulties. At the end of her presentation, which was just overwhelming in terms of her personal story, one of our um, participants commented to her, uh, how do you keep hope alive and how do you keep a smile on your face? To which she responded with what I literally wrote as a haiku and gave it back to her. For all the children, we smile amidst suffering to give them courage. Hmm. That was her full statement. Hmm. And it's 575. Hmm. Uh, a very different one you were talking about, Northern Ireland. Uh, seven years after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, I was sitting in a seminar, and people, uh, while still happy that the agreement had held, felt that um, Northern Ireland had fossilized in its sectoral relations. That is, that things were simply not changing 
and that it may not get much better. And in a dinner conversation, one of the colleagues from Northern Ireland I was sitting with said this that I placed into a haiku. I actually gave this one a title. I don't always title my haikus, but this one's called Rainbow's End, question mark. Maybe, he says, this is as good as it will get. Peaceful bigotry. Hmm. Hmm. Um, a few that were, for me, things that I've picked up in places I've been that uh, just to give a flavor. Uh, I've worked on, on occasion with a group of people from Burma inside from the ethnic minority groups. They call them ethnic minorities, even though they're the majority. It means they're not Burmese. And many of them have um, armed fronts that have been fighting, some of them for decades and decades, against the uh, current regime. I worked primarily with a small group of people who, for one reason or another, were brought into being shuttle mediators attempting to open up, discuss, or move some kind of a negotiation on between people in the Burmese government and various of the armed ethnic groups. There were small sets of people who had these experiences from each of the seven or eight ethnic groups. And in 2003, I spent the better part of a week simply listening to their stories. They were, from a mediator standpoint, some of the hardest stories that I've ever heard. I can remember one group who lived uh, very close uh, to the Bangladesh um, border with Burma who needed to carry a message across the border to the commander of an armed movement that was just on the other side. But they could not pass directly through the border to that area. They needed to travel all the way to the capital city of Yangon get a passport, and every passport has to be turned in after each visit, so it's a one-time passport, then fly to a third country, back to, the, to Bangladesh, take tra uh, ground transportation all the way out so that they were within about um, 60 or 70 miles from where they started mm. in order to convey one message, and then all the way back again to bring it forward, many times sitting with local commanders or groups who would arrest them and keep them imprisoned for weeks on end until they sorted through whether they were legitimate. Mm. Um, the, the perspective that you have in these situations is so uh, unbelievable about the kind of difficulties that they're facing. So, and the group that I was meeting with used a kind of an informal name. They referred to themselves as the Mediators Fellowship. And so I wrote a little haiku when I was leaving Yangon. This was in March of 2003. It was titled, Ad Advice from the Mediators Fellowship. Don't ask the mountain to move. Just take a pebble each time you visit. Mm. Mm. You want one more? Yeah. Um... Tajikistan, uh, this was translated back from Tajiki into English in the way that it rang in the translation. I, I played with it a little bit, and it came out almost as a perfect haiku. They have very odd borders in Central Asia that were created by Stalin. 
that have separated small portions of each major group so that every country has a minority of every other country's majority. Mm. And some of the most significant cultural cities of one group are located in a country where they don't live. Uh, so this was the haiku that came out. This one was in uh, April 2003. Gods and men love maps. They draw borders with pens that split lives like an axe. Wow. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking. Well, this has been really wonderful, as I, as I suspected it would be, and um, I'm, I'm delighted and grateful, and we will um, let you know you know, when this is airing. And what, what's lovely about being in radio these days is it's not just radio. It's, it's the whole online world. So, you know, we'll be able to put some of this haiku. We, we'll be able to put things up online that, that aren't in the show. So we'll let you know what's Very happening good. with that. That's our creative yeah. process. <laughs> That's Absolutely. the creativity I do. <laughs> Yeah, it's the creativity you do. What, what what you do would make you a wonderful peace builder, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, you know, I think about another stage of my life after my children leave, and that's occurred to me, so maybe we'll talk about that one day. Yeah, anytime you want. Okay. I'd be glad to. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. It's so good yeah, to talk Chris, to you. Yeah, Chris, it was great to talk to you. Hope All to right. see you again soon Thank sometime. Thank you. Me too. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.